0: Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, fly.io is looking for a site reliability engineer. This is a remote position. A small studio is looking for a visual designer. This is a remote position design action collective is looking for a web developer in oakland california and design b and is looking for a junior designer in chicago illinois for just 99 dollars, your job listing will be featured on our job board for 30 days and will spread the word about it to our diverse audience of listeners we also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs.
1: You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, just want to take a little time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview, we're ending off the month with one of my favorite guests, a real blast from the past, Ron Bronson. Ron is a director of experience design working in Civic Tech, and he's located in Portland, Oregon. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Hi, I'm Ron Bronson, based in Portland, Oregon, and I am a design director in Civic Tech in the government.
0: How has uh, 2021 been for you so far?
1: Interesting. I mean, obviously we're all coming out of coming out of COVID slowly. And uh, so that's obviously been a thing. And um, ascending to this role, I've been a, a manager with, uh, with a team of seven before. And now I've got over 30 direct reports. You know, obviously some managers who report to me, but there's the whole department now. So that it's definitely a different set of expectations and challenges trying to work on a book, trying to stay involved. So it's an interesting 2021 is interesting I try to remap all the stuff that, you know, you lost from sort of being in the house for a whole year.
0: Yeah. What lessons did you learn in this past year? Like when you look back, how do you think you've changed?
1: Wow. I think momentum doesn't necessarily have to stop. You know, I thought last year was kind of in my mind when it started and kind of things started to shut down, I'm like, oh, this would be a wasted year. <laughs> like all the stuff I had, it had a sort of, you know, mapped out for myself career wise, thinking about like work. And it turned out that wasn't true. Like there was, still you know, opportunities still came and was still able to do things and write stuff and read stuff and speak at, speak at events. And, and so that was, you know, obviously virtually. So that was interesting to me and surprised me. But I think maybe I got a better sense of what the things that motivated me a little bit. I don't know that I necessarily, like I sort of was operating with my outlets. So not autopilot, but kind of just doing stuff, you know, kind of taking for granted that every day was going to be this is what you do. You go to these events or you go to some nonprofits or you go to work and you see your friends and tell have all it taken away and realize that you kind of the things. Some of those things fueled you that, you, you know, you like doing that stuff or, it, mm-hmm. you know, it inspired you in some way to not have that is was crystallizing. It also made you appreciate it more. So it taught me a lot about myself and maybe like the times when somebody called said, so "Let's hang out and I'm like, no. Now, I'm probably like, hey, yeah, we should hang out. Let's do it. (laughs) So, it's a big lesson for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's been interesting how I've noticed this trend among like friends of mine, even from like guests that have been on the show. It's like, I feel like we're at this point where everyone is reevaluating what their next step is. We've been in the house or in some form of lockdown or restriction over the past year and a half. And now that things are starting to open up again. Everyone's like, well, let me think about what I want this next thing to be. Do I still want to go ahead in the same manner that I have with work or with my schedule? Or do I want to change things? Like, I'm seeing that everywhere now, which I guess is a good thing.
1: I think so. I think it's cool to have, you know, not cool, but I think it's I think it's important to have these conversations because we weren't really able to take stock of them before. We were able to sort of see the world for what it was, maybe a little bit.
0: Right. Now I know you can't talk directly about the work that you're doing because it is a, a government agency, but can you give just sort of a broad overview about the work that you do?
1: I think at the core of the work I've been doing for years, really, even before I became an assortment in federal service and was working in state government, is you are trying to identify, you know, problem spaces that exist, working with sort of collaboratively with teams to identify, you know, problem spaces, big problems, small problems, murky problems. And trying to sort of figure out a way, a sort of operationalize a way out of those problems and doing that in a way that's sustainable. Like it's one thing to go into a place and say, I'm going to help you solve this and then solve it and leave. It's like when you break something and you fix it and you don't know how they fixed it. So now they're gone. So you got to call them every time. And instead, doing it where you're like, we're going to, you're going to help us. You're, you're going to work with us. You're going to be our, you're going to be our eyes and ears right here. You're going to be part of the team that helps us figure this out. And that way, you know how we did it so that we're gone. <laughs> like you can do it. And not only can you do it, you can teach other people to do it too. And so I think at its core, that's the work that I do, that we do. And it's it's pretty rewarding. It's definitely not, I would say it's easy, but it's definitely rewarding.
0: What makes it rewarding?
1: I think it's fun to, to see a murky situation that doesn't necessarily have an explicit answer. And maybe the thing I learned from like, say when I started to now is where I identified a problem. Like, oh, I know exactly what the problem is here. Do a little research, and will just it will just confirm what I knew the problem was. And you get on this team, and you work together to to ask, You know, do some use some research. You really to talk to some users or stakeholders and get some answers. It turns out not only were you wrong, but what they asked you to do was maybe the wrong pro was the wrong framing of the problem. So now you need to revisit it. Or you got a prototype of a thing an idea, and you talk to the people who actually use the thing, and they say, no, 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 you're missing the point. What you actually need is something completely different. And now you got to re- revisit and reboot and rethink. And so it's fun to go through that, not initially. What's fun about it is if you can go through that and you do it in this way that's thoughtful and you you bring in, bring the people along, Then at the end of it, what you get, the end result of what you get is more sustainable and it's fun to see the fruits of that labor. Like I know we, you, gosh, you build things. Like some people who build stuff, it's one thing when you build a thing and you've got to do all the work yourself, you know, yeah. or you're working a team. But like, and then when you go away, it collapses. But it's fun. Even at my non, you know, I started Indianapolis Design Week. And then you know, when I left, somebody else took it over. It's cool when you can see a thing as you started, somebody else takes it over and they put their own spin on. And that's sustainable and it has a legacy. And so to, to have that in my professional work as well is super rewarding. Even if it's, like I said, a longer process to get there. It takes a long time. It's not, it's nebulous. The answers aren't as clear. That's super fun.
0: Yeah. I like that part about you saying that it's it's sustainable because I think... Certainly if you're a designer or a developer at, I'm just naming companies here, like a Dropbox or something like that. No shade to Dropbox. I love Dropbox. But if you're at like a product based company, the work that you do may really not even be seen. It can easily be overwritten. It's kind of ephemeral. Like, Mm -hmm. and also you don't really know if your service, you know, is going to be around in the next five years, 10 years or whatever, you know, whereas the work that you're doing, you know, that. It has a, a home almost.
1: Exactly, exactly, 100%. Yep, I think I think that's, that's I think that's, and I think that you talk about public sector work in general or working in like tech where, you know, you're even or adjacent or something. By being able to do work that you know, like, again, they may also be cloistered and no one will see it, but at least you know, you know at the end of the day who you're working for, <laughs> like either either for the people in front or the people behind the scenes or up with the people in the front. And I think that's a cool cycle of life to sort of have. What's a, a typical day like for you? You know, it varies. It varies dramatically. And it's it varied obviously when you talk about being in, say, for instance, leadership in this, this situation versus maybe when I was an individual contributor or even a couple of years ago and I'm working in say like, you know, local or state situations. But I say that, you know, we see a lot of meetings, obviously. But it's a lot of context switching. So, you know, it's it's there's meetings obviously to deal with just like the things you would deal with in any kind of leadership role. There's also kinds of, you know, so, some project related stuff that happens as well. In my case, right now. Lots of like, you know, strategy and trying to sort of figure out like how to build resiliency into 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 teams and and into and and supporting people where they're at. But it's really variable. There, I don't think two days. I mean, other than say, there's a lot of meetings. I don't think any two days are alike. (laughs) Like the the content of each day is very different because it's so responsive to like what's happening, not only in the world but individually or organizationally or whatever. So it can be really very variable, which is cool. It obviously if you're if you're a control freak not that i am but maybe a little bit you, it can be a little discombobulating because you're like you don't know sometimes you don't know what's coming you're like oh it's gonna happen in a month from now? i don't know it could be anything yeah um, but as long as you can relish and embrace that sort of mystery it's it's kind of fun how have
0: your responsibilities changed over the years i mean i guess aside from going up the ranks to where you're at as a director but like how have your responsibilities really changed since you've been there
1: the scope and the size. So you actually, when you talked to me years ago, I was a director then too, but I had like, I had couple, only a few director ports and I was sort of leading statewide strategy, but it was a different sort of scale was different. And also the purview is different. The responsibilities are different. And then I, you know, go to a smaller government and it's like, you know, obviously I don't have, I don't have as much of, I don't have any of that kind of responsibility and more principal designer kind of work. And then over the last couple of years going from IC and doing, you know, like more information architecture and content strategy work, but also at least more strategic work in general to leading projects, to staffing people to projects, to now sort of doing, again, sort of now just like trying to shape an entire, you know, like figuring out like how you move a team forward. In an industry that didn't really, it wasn't really a thing, right? Like, you know, designers and working in the public sector, much less entire teams. I mean, it's one or two people, okay. We've always been around. But to have like the scale of a, say, a small agency of design type people in an entity that definitely like a lot of making things from scratch, trying to invent it as you uh, sort of build a fly the plane as you build it Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So for me, I think the work is similar. I think I'm doing a similar kinds of things, a lot of similar kind of thinking. I think it's just over the years taking different like playing a video game and going to different levels and taking the, the coins you get from level three, and now you use them at level six because you've got a lot more coins in your pocket, right? Or you got this elixir on level four and you put that in you, and now you're on level eight and you're like, oh, I'm ready. I got mm-hmm. that. That wizard gave me that thing. I mean, it's a funny metaphor, but that's kind of what it is. I don't feel like it's that different. It's just that it you just the other experience has prepared you for a more meetings and it prepares you for nebulous things and having to like answer questions that are not. And also, like, you get to choose sometimes the things that you get to decide. You're working with other people. But at the end of the day, like, the buck stops with you at a certain point for certain things. And that's weirder than when you're... I joked before I did this, was like, oh, well, it was really cool being the person that you could talk to people about the work and the problems. It's like... It's like watching your favorite sports team on TV and being like, ah, if I was the general manager, I would do this, this, and this. And then now you're the general manager of the baseball team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It turns out turns out there were things you didn't know about the problem space he was in. You didn't know that the budget was here or you need to do this or do that. So that metaphor, I think maps very well to my existence now. Whereas the things you just don't know until you're in the seat and you're like, oh, maybe I was wrong about that other lens I had before.
0: Yeah. Has it changed... I guess now with things being more remote, or have, you've, you've always been remote in that role, I've right? always
1: been remote. So for me, no. It's not changed anything about anything. Okay. Um, I, mean, it's, I think the, the scope of the work is, you know, the sort of the work is different maybe a little bit, but no, it, it's the same. It didn't, nothing changed in that way at all, okay. which is great. I mean, I, look, well, I'd say this, that across government, across public sector, civic tech, whatever, it was definitely a sort of, especially when you get down to like state and local levels, right? Certainly a resistance to to remote work, to this kind of thing, for a bevy of reasons. I know when I worked in local government, we had a heck of a time trying to get even a day where you could work remote. And, well, they had to change that last year. (laughs) They a choice, right? (laughs) And so I think that now you deal with people and you see this. And now people have a level of – it's not savvy, but they certainly have more experience with it now. And so the resistance they used to have isn't there like it used to be because folks have had to adapt to this new reality. And so I think that takeaway has been great because it was such a difficult thing before. I think, again, you get down to these lower levels or certain, you know, whatever agencies, whoever, perhaps maybe, I don't know. It's so it's been, that part's been, I think, great to see is just people's comfort level with it changed in ways that you never saw before.
0: Yeah. Do you think that an interest in civic design has, has changed over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was actually talking to a friend about this, a friend who, you know, left the country for a while and wants to come back to the country. It was like, you know, what should I do? And I'm like, see, when you left, there were really only, you know, it was really just a few things you could do, a few places you could go. You know, U.S. Digital Service or, you know, an 18F or something or places like that, you know, Code for America. Like there weren't, you know, be New York City, but you didn't have the options. Now there's tons of cities that have, you know, these digital service teams, you know, different states like Colorado that have them now. Local governments are starting these, you know, like San Francisco has their own teams. Um, there are lots of private sector companies, of course, that are doing this, that are in, built in very similar models, that use a lot of the same tenants. And so I think that, yeah, there's a ton of opportunity for people now to be able to get involved in helping, you know, using their skills for good and for helping, you know, helping move things forward and helping accelerate conversations that maybe were harder before. You wouldn't have gone to work for the IT department in your local town before. You wouldn't have wanted to do that, but now maybe you would because of all the different ways that specific tech conversation has elevated and, and you know, proliferated.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I've had a few service designers and designers working in government, like on the show over the past few years. And I think certainly all of us have seen how design and technology can have a profound effect on how people process information. I think we can clearly look at the last five years and see how that has been the yes. case. Right. If you had to give a pitch to say like, I don't know, like current designers and developers now about going into civic tech. What
1: would that look like? So I think people miss to a lot of the other things that I work on personally. It's one thing to be upset about systems and and structures and and processes and things not working well. It's another thing to actually like try to figure out how you can not only leverage your skills to make things better, but to be on the inside, at least to see you're going to do it forever. But at least to see how it operates, see where the problems are, see where the issues are, see how you can solve some of those. Don't just complain about the problems. How do we solve the pro fix some of the problems? And we're not going to fix all of them, but you can fix some. And also it's a nice proving ground for being able to like leverage, especially people who are like hybrids, you know, like you're an you're an interaction designer who has like, you know, likes research, or you're a you know, you're a service designer, but turns out you're really good at product design. Like to be able to let you know, you leverage or you're a content strategist who also you know does PM stuff. To leverage those sort of skills because in a lot of especially the lower you get down in government, they're not going to have these massive agile teams. So you're going to deploy those multiple skill sets. I did that when I was in local government. I really liked it personally because it gave me a chance to sharpen some skills. You know, my front end skills got way better being in that situation because I had to had to get they had to get that way. Maybe in a bigger place that would that simply would never happen. So I think my pitch to people who are considering this kind of work is is to is that if you care about community they care about you're a technologist who cares about the work it's a good way for you to give back and be involved but also to grow skills that'll they'll serve you well moving forward you know beyond where you are in your career right now
0: we're all digital citizens in some way agreed
1: agreed 100 percent. yep that's it
0: actually not even in some way we totally are all digital citizens i mean with social media and such you really can't escape it
1: so true so true
0: now, when you and I first spoke back in 2014, and you alluded to this earlier just now, you were in Kentucky, I believe. What do you remember from working back during that time?
1: So that job was, it was, I can talk about the job all I want. <laughs> that job was um, the, the state headquarters for the community college system. And so it was like, it was it was higher ed, but it really wasn't. I was basically, in a. it actually, that was the first job that I'd had that wasn't on a campus at that time. So for me, it was a little weird at first. To be in this, was ostensibly higher ed, but what it really was, was a state, was like, you have a government job, you know, you're basically a bureaucrat, and you're making policy, and like, you 16 different colleges, and you're like, setting digital strategy for the entire state, and working with an internal team, and a lot of the processes and things didn't really exist before we built them, when I had that job. So, I mean, it's why I'm here, frankly, in many ways, even though I don't know that that was, you know, my favorite job. But it gave me a great gl- glimpse and lens of how to. It had to manage it. How to manage a big team? How to, how do you manage people who are, don't report to you, but you still set policy for them and what your your decisions impact their work? I had to learn that and develop that skill over time. How to develop training for a massive, you know, internal team, public facing stuff. So it was a great so trial by fire. You know, people to tell you see on Twitter a lot. Folks will say. Oh, you should have, you know, if you're qualified for a job, but you're not sure and you're nervous, apply anyway because you might learn something. Well, that that job is that. Well, you feel like a little in over your head, like a little bit. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend that all the time. But in that situation, the the pros for me in terms of what I learned, at what, what those lessons taught me after. And a lot of them were bad lessons. It was like, you know, people related lessons. But still... You know, so I remember that time very vividly. I'm not going to get into all of it, but y'all have to DM me and I'll tell you all the dirt. But, but, in, any <laughs> case, but in any case, the positives of, of that were the lessons that I learned really allowed me moving forward to be a much more incisive designer, a much more compassionate leader, be better communicative, be better, better communicating to own what I know. So, yes, there were some really great lessons from that time that have served me well, even to this day. Hmm.
0: And now you first kind of entered into civic design right after, it was right after you left Kentucky, went to Indiana, you were a principal service designer for the city of Bloomington, Indiana. Yes. Was it a big shift kind of going from education to now like civic design work?
1: It wasn't partially for two reasons. One, because, again, that job in Kentucky was pretty much a state job. Like, I mean, it was like state related. So everything Uh we did was bureaucrat level state stuff. Like that job and my job now, they're different. But I mean, it was a lot of the same kinds of economies of scale. So that prepared me pretty well for being sort of in a faceless situation. Local government was fun. I really enjoyed it. At You know, especially the sub hundred thousand size city level. Like in a big city, it'd be like probably similar to what I do. But in a city where it's like 80,000 people. It's folks have problems with the website. They print a thing out and bring it to city hall and say, "Ah, I went to this page. It didn't mm-hmm. work. Can you fix it? Like right now?" Oh, you know, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was really cool. You you know, go to parties and folks tell you that they found a thing. Like so much of the work that we do as technologists in any part of the space that you're doing, and I'm being very broad about this, you don't really get to you interact with the users and you know, in user interviews or stakeholder things, but you're not dealing with your users in this like very sort of retail way. Yeah. Same ways that if a thing breaks, I can go take it back to the store. Can't do that with a website. But in local government, a city of that size, with a team that we had, that was an amazing team. I, I went to shout at Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington, so that set open source development team. All the stuff they had built was in-house. We transitioned a site from an open source CMS to Drupal. So our, sorry, in-house CMS that we had to Drupal. So it was a whole process, and all the things mm-hmm. that went on there. But it was really, really cool, actually, to get to do that. So no, the transition wasn't weird. I think the hard part for me was... Going from being sort of, you know, director and doing a lot more, you know, like leadership stuff to going back to being hands on. I did that on purpose. It was a deliberate decision <clears> for me to, you know, I was in a, it was, a, you know, IT shop. So doing a lot more like, you know, front end development and doing design and you know, building the design system initially and but also doing a lot of service design stuff. I did all the service design. They never had a service designer before. All the user research. I mean, it was a collaborative effort with some of the folks, but like leading that you know, UX design. Writing tons of content, so wearing a ton of hats. But I wanted that experience, and I missed it. It, For me, it was really great to get to do that while also doing strategy, while also shipping an actual physical thing. They need a new site up. They've been ten years old, and we shipped it. So I loved it.
0: Now, through the work that you've done, there's this phrase that that you've coined. I've seen come up called consequence design. Can you talk about sort of how you came to that idea, and what exactly does consequence design entail?
1: I used to always joke with anybody who asked me about Consequence. I mean, I I feel like I have a better answer now, but I feel like every interview I do about this, the definition changes. So you just map them all together at some point. We're going to figure this out together as a community. (laughs) But really what it is, is I feel like Consequence design is really born out of a lot of the conversations that are happening right now around, I think there are several conversations. There's some that around, you know, like, any patterns or, you know, dark patterns, for instance, or which I don't like saying, but it's people don't talk about when I say it. So I just say it um, or you know, some of the hostile patterns that you see online. And I feel like a lot of these conversations, well, one, they're like they're not calling a spade a spade. Like We already have words for what deception is. Like We already know what something is fraud. But we don't want to call it that. So instead we call it a, we call it, oh, it's a dog pattern. No, this website is trying to scam your grandmother. That's a scam. And we should call it what it is. It's fraud. We should call it what it is. But through doing talks about these topics over the previous couple of years, all over the world, people would ask me kind of, okay, well, what do I do about it? I'm just an, I'm just a junior designer at, you know, a bank. What am I supposed to do about this? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I fix it? And so I, I felt like, all the conversations that we have around, you know, like ethics and ethical design and so forth, as a philosophy washout, I didn't like those conversations because one, they triggered me to thinking about Hegel and not doing great in philosophy, and I'm being funny right now. But also, <laughs> but also which is true, I didn't do great at that. But the other reason I don't like it is because it it takes the agency out of the hands of individuals. Yes, you're not gonna fix certain structures and systems. But there are things that you can do and that you can impact at your level or have a conversation about with your colleagues and eventually impact through glacial change, through iterative change. So I wanted a term that was how do we take, you know, like the areas where policy, service design, and user experience, how do we merge these things together? And how do we take like real world experiences, things like kiosks in public spaces that have really terrible UIs? Like, that's not divorced from the work that you and I do every day, but people act like it is. Like, how we foist these experiences on people. And so I wanted to bring all that together to have a sort of industry wide, a taste, practitioner wide conversation around, like, so let's identify these are problems. And let's talk about how we might be able to, like, fix some of these things. First, we need to identify that they're actually problems. And I didn't just want to keep talking about the individual pieces of it. I wanted to be able to have a way to encapsulate it. And that's how I got to ComSquest Design as an idea it's still very fuzzy the book is not out it will not be out till next year but i'm I'm trying i'm trying to get there
0: oh yeah that's right you're you're writing a book i, I saw slowly, online very slowly <laughs> well, <laughs> i saw parts of what you've been putting together online and we'll link to that in the show notes so people can can take a look at that but it's not your first book that you've written you wrote a yeah. book back in in 2017 right
1: yeah, yeah, it was just more. That was more of an, really more of like you know how people do when you write, you blog for years and you put all the blog posts into a book, and so that's what that was. You know, that so counts. The, the web management <laughs> guide. Yeah, it was it was a, it was fun, fun to get all that stuff together. Mostly because you know all those blogs are dead now, so yeah. I'm kind of glad I, I got a few of those those things together into a piece. But this will be the first time I published a real like you know a print book. That was just we did that online and you throw on GitHub. It wasn't anything too fancy, but this will be a real thing that you can put in your hands and hopefully use the reference guy. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'll be more excited when it's done, but excited about getting further down the path.
0: So I read web management for regular people because this was right around the time I was sort of, I mean, I was coming out of doing lunch, like I was coming out of doing my studio and, you know, looking for work, looking for something else. and really was trying to sort of almost like brand myself more as a strategist and less of just a designer because I had been a designer and I had done the studio for so long. And honestly, having a team that did the large part of the actual building and construction meant that I sort of fell behind in my skills. Like, yeah, I could still get in Photoshop and whip something up if I need to, but like, I'm nowhere near the production level work that I used to be in terms of speed. I wouldn't say in terms of quality, but certainly in terms of speed, like I'm nowhere near that. Not to mention with even web design, like, I mean, all the stuff that went on in the like mid 2010s around CSS preprocessors and stuff. I was like, okay, now you've lost me. Mm -hmm. Like now that you're introducing JavaScript into CSS, I'm out. Right. (laughs) Right, right. And I remember reading parts of your book because I was really like thinking of how I would rebrand myself and eventually ended up doing that as becoming a digital strategist. And even now where I work at now, I'm a content strategist, but reading what you had to say about like, strategy and how to design strategists and things like that. And even talking with other people I've had on the show, like Douglas Davis, like really helped me to form an idea of where I wanted to take my career next. So I want to, you know, just thank you for that.
1: I appreciate that. And that makes that warms my heart. It's really cool. Because yeah, I don't, I didn't know anybody cared. But I appreciate <laughs> that. that's why I used to ask them, and I'm like, Oh, right. I'm gonna talk about that. But that's really cool. That's really, really cool.
0: But like, it's something that is is certainly important now. I mean, it's funny, like, I see so many strategy roles now that I certainly didn't see a few True. years ago.
1: Yeah, there definitely weren't any back then, right?
0: And I think initially, they kind of were more in the purview or in the domain of advertising. But mm-hmm. like, I've now tech startups are looking for strategists and different web agencies are looking for strategists. They're looking for someone that can sort of Bridge the gap, I suppose, between the design and the business, or at least has been in the trenches enough, I should say, to uh-huh. be able to kind of give an overview of what should be done, where we should go, what pitfalls we should sort of look out for. But yeah, strategy is a, is an interesting field now in, in design because it's, you're kind of a, a professional generalist in a way. So true. And certainly at a time in the industry when things were so heavily skewed towards product design, and I would say they probably still are are, to a fault, strategists occupy a really interesting role in the design industry. So, yeah, I want to, you know, definitely thank you for that. I appreciate that. Now, one thing, you know, that I've noticed looking through your history and everything is that coaching is like a really big constant in your life. It's something you've done since you were really like a young man, a teenager, uh-huh. mostly tennis, but I mean, other coach debate as well. What does coaching do
1: for you? It's really fun to, especially coaching tennis, because you just see it. I mean, it's me too, but like it's, it happened then too. That moment where somebody goes from a thing you talked about all season, you keep telling them over and over again. You're like, look, you're to build on this. I remember it happens every season, all the time. These kids, you like, Start them off early, and it's like really hard. Whatever it is you got them doing, maybe you got them playing people that are better than them because that's what you need them to do that week. Or maybe the you know, kids are rushing things and they're not doing as well. And then by the end of the year, it's this moment where they play and it comes together for them, and then they win something that they you didn't think they'd win, or you know whatever. And it's always fun when. I was the worst player on a really good team in high school, like four D1 guys in my high school tennis team. I was definitely not D1 quality. I played D3 tennis, but but seeing how good players prepare, seeing how they work, and also trying to figure out how to fit in in that environment, right? My way to fit in was to like basically be like the second coach. I was a scout, so I could tell my guys like, oh, yeah, the number one guy. Yeah, Kenny, you played that guy last year. You beat him two and one. That mm-hmm. was really useful to him. He appreciated that information. And so it would go from them being like curious about me saying that to them to like, hey, Ron, hey, did I play this guy? How did it go? Like, tell me, you know, calm me down, help me out. And so I'm in high school and I'm doing this. I'm in high school junior, I'm a senior, and I'm doing this for my better players. because I wanted to fit in, I wanted to be on the team. And so as I got older, I didn't like practicing as a kid. I didn't, I liked to work on my own, but I didn't really enjoy the way practices were set up. So I'm like, how do I create an environment where players want to get better. They want to come. They want to belong irrespective of where they are in terms of their talent level. All you need to do is be hungry and excited about it. So how it ties to my everyday work is the same kind of thing. You come in with energy. You come in excited. I come in trying to help you get better. And it's not transactional, I'm not trying to make you better to make, to make, get something out of it for me. I mean, we benefit from it, but I don't care about that. If it means you getting better means you leave and go make more money. Shout out to you. Because you did that. You made that happen. I didn't. And so, coaching is that. And it's and it's fun over the years. I've been at camps over the years. I've been coaching high school tennis now. To have this arc of seeing kids from like 1998, when I had the first time I coached, to this year. I mean, I've taken years off, of course. But I coached this season. So, seeing like the kids, basically, in theory, there were kids in 98 who probably could have kids now. Like, you know, who could be kids of mine, right? Like, <laughs> I've done a generation of this in a way. And so, it's fun to be to be a little relevant over the times, you get to see how people evolve and grow and change, and how you need to adapt your methods to resonate with a different generation. You know, I'm almost washed, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> um, I'm getting there. Though. I'm not going to be coaching at sixty. I'm not going to be super washed at that point. But so I'm not going to be one of those coaches you see, like, oh no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm nearing my end. But it's been really fun, and and it's you know, you work online. As Somebody who spends a lot of time on a laptop, a lot of time on a computer. It's very, very nice to have a time where you don't do that. And somewhere you got to show up and be accountable to people and not just like a, mm. like to be somewhere every day. And it's like different than like a nonprofit or something. This is different. This is, you know, this is very, it's in person, it's every day. It's an ebb and flow. It's pretty simple, but it's not. You build the culture, but you got you to enforce the culture. It's a lot of lessons in it. I learned so much this, from this season of coaching. I learned so much. And it's stuff that I think applies to my everyday work. So it's super, super cool.
0: What are you obsessed with right now?
1: Oh man, finished baseball. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Taste Apollo, Google it, friends. But <laughs> I really want to know what's next. People tease me. Friends of mine, even second tier friends, will tease me about like, "Oh, your Twitter bio changes all the time," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm just A/B testing." But also, I just want to <laughs> see. Different but one of the one of the things I always put in there. Is, well, no, it's not in there right now. But maybe after we hang up. So, you know, thinking out loud about a post-service design world, and so I'm really obsessed right now with thinking about, it's released to the work anyway, is thinking about, like, what does a world look like that doesn't involve always just expecting folks to get on the treadmill? Like, how do we build experiences that, that involve people getting off? How do we build humane experiences that, that allow people to say, well, you use the thing, but you're not using it anymore. Thanks for using it instead of guilt tripping them because they're going to unsubscribe from your stupid newsletter. So I wonder about that. And I think COVID's helped a little bit with that, but I still think it's, it, we're still very embedded in the, the CRM, always be closing mentality of every, it's permeated everything that we do. So I'm really obsessed with like, how do we, especially in terms of, of human centered design what does the next thing look like? How do we ideate past this world that is very dominated by selling and buying things? Because I don't like it. I just don't. So I'm very obsessed with trying to figure that out. Not because I want to invent something. I want, maybe I want to absolve my own guilt for being involved in this tangentially. But that's what I'm obsessed with other than finished baseball, which I'm very obsessed with is this topic. <laughs>
0: Please go more into finished baseball.
1: Long story short, this is the, your 92nd version of the story. In okay. Finland, they play a version of baseball. They've been playing it since the version they play now since 1920s. It's, it's a really cool design story. A uh, Finnish guy, he's a Finnish Olympian actually in track though. They played a version, they played a bat and ball game in Europe that was like, you know, basically it was one base, whatever. He came to America twice and saw some baseball games and was like, hmm, I like this, but I can make it better. <laughs> so he went home in over 20 years. Partially because of the way the country, it became, Finland became a country in a uh, hundred years ago. And so he was able to do this at the time when the country was becoming a country. So, you know, you mm-hmm. sort of build this national pride over their own sport. And so he was able to iterate this sport called pace apollo, which is basically a finished version of baseball. There are nine players. There are four bases. There's a bat, there's a ball, there's a field. Everything else is different. <laughs> the rules are a little bit, it gets weirder. I found it online years ago. You know, I invented a sport years ago. And so I found it in the midst of doing that, but it wasn't until about. 2016 or so that I sort of through, through the internet, through, tw- through the magic of Twitter, sort of went like, mini-viral in Finland over. There was an article about me in a newspaper. I ended up at the Finnish Embassy in New York. I've been to Finland mm-hmm. since then. I've been on TV in Finland. It's a whole thing. So, anyway, I just enjoyed the game. I think it's really it's a really cool design story. It's mostly a rural sport. You get more than 90 seconds. It's, a, it's a mostly a rural sport. There are some city teams, but it's uh-huh. evolved into being a pretty rural sport. There are kids that play it from when they're little. There are adults that play it. I just love the community and the culture around it. It's a very specifically finished thing. And I just think it's a fun story to me. I think it's, it's been really fun to get immersed in it. And you can knock and watch all the games online. Back in the day, when I used to get into this, you couldn't do that. It was like three day old videos and there were no commentary and you didn't know what was going on. Now I understand the game fairly well, Monocle cool podcasts. So it, it's been a really fun way to get immersed in another culture. You threw a thing that we all, you know, they many of us appreciate sports, right? So yeah. That's the story.
0: <laughs>
1: Interesting.
0: I'm looking it up now and I like that Wikipedia calls it a fast moving bat and ball sport.
1: Yeah, it's way faster than baseball. It's way faster <laughs> than baseball. It's, it's definitely not boring. It's not it's not boring. You can't baseball game you can get up, go get a hot dog, come back and you know, you won't miss anything maybe. And baseball you you would do that and you might miss a lot. So Yeah. You know, it's pretty great.
0: Is it played here in the States or is it mostly just a European?
1: No, it's literally only played in Finland. Oh, okay. Uh, It's literally only played in Finland. I mean, if you would, there are a few pockets of places where Finnish expats have brought it. So like there's a small community in Switzerland. There's a small community in Germany. There's a smaller community in Sweden. And, you know, like there are probably eight people in America that might play it. And as it turns out, the outreach that they were doing there's actually a community of people playing in Bangladesh and in India, weirdly enough, and Pakistan. So, like, there's a finally the sports trying to go not global, but a little bit of some growth going on. There's a major league for men's and women's sport for both, and it's, it is, but it's prime, it is entirely a finished finish exercise right now. So, yeah. So, nothing in the States.
0: Fascinating. I'm looking it up, like, as you're, as you're talking about it, I'm seeing all this. All these articles and things about it. I'm gonna have to watch some Pace Apollo on YouTube. I'm interested. Yeah, now.
1: yeah, there's some good stuff on YouTube. Some good stuff on YouTube and Twitter. Um, you go to Super Paces. You can look it up, or you know, you follow me. Unfortunately, you can see. You're not gonna unfollow me after this, but it was a good run we had. It was a good run we had. <laughs> but you can see all my annoying tweets about it and half finished half the time by my, my poor attempts at finish. I've gotten better, but it's still pretty bad. <laughs> But yeah, it's some really fun stuff, just to highlights, because they've gotten way better at social media in the past 10 years. So yeah. it's there's you can actually follow the game fairly well online. It's pretty neat.
0: Nice. What advice has uh, has stuck with you the longest like throughout your career?
1: I don't know that it's a specific advice. I think it's more modeling. Having had so many good bosses over the years, good managers, people who weren't managers, people who just looked out for you. And having that modeled so much in my life, has made me like, is a level of empathy and care and consideration that I never would have. I think it's funny how you actually talk about 2014. The lesson is, is that that experience taught me that if that had been my first job, and that had been my first me- situation with a manager, my entire career would be different, <laughs> like and not for the better. Mm. And so it's it's wild how one person or one situation can completely change the trajectory of your situation. So you need to you know, choose carefully, you know, the places you decide to, you know, start your career or move your career or whatever, because people unfortunately have an outsized impact on where you go and how you move forward and, you know, how you get to brand yourself and so forth. But it made me very appreciative for the people before that in ways that I wouldn't have thought. Like it just, it made me so appreciative for people, you know, who like I said, looked out for me, who empowered me, who, who propelled me, who gave me the room to fail, who gave me chances mm. Help me grow and, and put me in positions to be successful. Like, and so I just try to pay that forward all the time, any way I can, because I'm just so grateful for that.
0: Now, when I look at your past interview, and then of course, I'm talking with you now, and just seeing all the things that you have accomplished in life, aside from, you know, career wise, you also just have very interesting personal pursuits. I mean, you sort of glossed over inventing a sport, but You've invented a sport. You're into Pesapalo. You're doing all these. It's, you had a T-line for a while. I remember the T-line. I did.
1: did. Yeah. Yeah. You go way back. <laughs> yeah.
0: What haven't you done yet that you want to do?
1: I did stand up too. That was cool. I got that out of the way. Never doing that again. Um, <laughs> it was fine. Never just, it just you know, it, you can't. I want to win a state title next year. That'll be cool if we could do that. Only because my high school coach never got. So my, my high school coach meant a lot to me. And then that we never got to do it through the way schools work. All the all the a lot of the players he trained end up going to private schools, and so we were good. But we, I wouldn't have been on a high school team if we had had the players that should have been on the team. But we we were robbed of our state title, so I'd love to win one for him. So that'd be cool. Besides that, I don't know. It's actually this it's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for it because I'm not sure. It's a question that I've wondered myself. Is cool. You've gotten pretty far. You've done some stuff. Like wow, what a run you've had you know, what's next and getting this book out to be cool and you know, things like that. Yeah. I'm really curious to, to see kind of myself, like what the next bucket of milestones and goals for myself are, you know, I'm not sure. A lot of my work right now is focused on trying to like build a better world, I guess, which is hokey, but it's true. And, and personally, I'm not even sure. I honestly, I really don't even know. <laughs> hmm.
0: Well, I guess this is sort of a, a related question to that, but like, where do you see yourself like in the next five years? Like what what would you like the next chapter of your story to be?
1: I want it to be intentional. I want my next story my chapter of my story to be intentional and I want it to be with I want there to be a level of care involved in it. It'd be cool if I could, you know, get out of America for a while and, and go live somewhere else, like for a good while. Maybe not come back. That'd be rad, at would be the end of that. So if you're listening to Finnish Embassy, call me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, something like that would be cool. I think it's maybe, if not really as it would not relate to that, thinking about the work, it'd be cool to see what other kinds of stuff I could do. It'd be fun to help a state scale up their own digital team and like go run one of those or like, I love fixing naughty problems and solving them. So, and I'm, and I've got some longevity in that now. So I really enjoy that kind of work. So it'd be fun to find a bigger problem space and to solve it and help, 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 help it work with a team of people to fix these problems and none of the stuff's done alone. So that could be fun um, to set those kinds of goals. I like being behind the scenes. I don't, neg- I don't need anything like super super, super visible. I don't want to like I don't aspire to anything, you know, ridiculously visible. Mm-hmm. But I like solving problems that other folks don't necessarily want to want to solve. But I think much like when we talked 7 years ago, I did not know. I didn't know what the future had in store. I didn't know what my ceiling was. And I think that if I wanted people to to get something from this, you get nothing else from my interview about other than other than learning about Pace Apollo, which is amazing. You should all love it is to, is don't put a governor or a ceiling or a cap on your potential. Don't let your own imposter syndrome or something your parents said when you were 11 or something a teacher said when you were 22. Like, don't let, or a boss said to you when you were 30. Don't let those things, those individual isolated situations, put a cap on where you think you can go. Now, obviously, you have to do the work. Obviously, you've got to show up. Obviously, you've got to have some luck. But if you can position yourself, the opportunities can come. The things can come. If you're patient, but you're also doing the work and be willing to reinvent yourself. But I think that that's that's the biggest lesson from, say, when we talk to now and about thinking about the future is like as long as you don't put a cap on it prematurely, then who knows what, what the door what the worst can open, what ceilings can be there? Because I don't know. I didn't I didn't predict this. I didn't see this coming. I really didn't. I'm past where I thought I was trying to go. So which is really cool but also kind of frightening.
0: <laughs> well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, Ron, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online?
1: Definitely always at ronbronson.com. Definitely on your Twitter machine, your mileage may vary there at Ron Bronson um, and also consequencedesign.org. I'm trying to throw things up on there as well. And since more recent, I encourage me to do this. I'm probably going to take that old book and sticks of that stuff on there too. <laughs>
0: the strategy book is is really good. If people want to check it out, and I'll, I can link to it in the show notes. Like it's a it's a quick read, and really like I came across it at a time when I needed to think about like what my next step was going to be. You know, because I had sort of wound down my studio, and I was doing interviews, and I mean the places I was interviewing at, I was like, I just don't. I don't want to go and just be a designer. I can bring more to the table than that. And so reading you know, just what you wrote about strategy and everything really kind of changed my mindset going into all this. So hopefully people will check it out. Well, Ron, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show, for really giving us an update on what you've been working on. It's been so great to hear about all the work that you're doing, helping out our our government as a whole with the work that you're doing. I know we're not going directly talking about stuff, yeah, but no. just being well, able we to, have- <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's
1: true. <laughs> yeah, yeah you. Y'all can look and see. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. But I think just one being able to do that work and then also how you're encouraging and paying it forward to other people, whether it's in civic tech, whether it's coaching or what have you, I can definitely tell that you have that that sort of spirit of paying it forward, which I think will, will take you very far. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Appreciate you too, you know, always for all the work you've been doing and doing this these thankless tasks that, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of energy and amplifying people, especially back in the day. I'm giving you your flowers while we're on the show. Like, I was just a guy buried somewhere, and I think I tweeted at you, and you were like, yeah, come on the show! Like, that's just <laughs> like, seriously the coolest thing in the world, and you didn't have to do that. You could have been like, ah, alright, buddy, that's fine. I got a, I got a long list, and you did. So, like, super grateful for you, not only for this, but for all the things you've done over the years, different projects you've put on, and amplifying the black designers specifically, but also people of color and and just really do not just talking about the work, but doing the work and being intentional about that and inspiring others to do that, including me. So just as much as you just said, whatever I did, it goes back to you. Your body of work speaks for itself. So super grateful for you for now and always.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Big thanks to Ron Bronson and of course thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ron and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. And of course thanks to our wonderful sponsor Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA: Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you. Please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow. And honestly, after eight plus years in the podcast game, it really helps us just reach more people all around the world. So don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it a secret. Let everybody know about Revision Path.